We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. When he retired, he held the NFL records for most passes caught in a career for the most yards gained in a career. He was also the first player to catch 100 touchdown passes. And when he retired, all he did was go to Washington and serve four terms in the House of Representatives from his native state of Oklahoma. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Steve Largent. Steve, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I look forward to, uh, to speaking with you today. Um, as I mentioned, your native state is Oklahoma. Uh, you're, you're born in Tulsa yeah. and you're raised uh, outside of Oklahoma City. T- tell me about growing up in Oklahoma uh, you know, and, and your years at Putnam City High. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a it was a time of life and um, and season of life, I guess, uh, where, you know, kids played, uh, you know, backyard football, backyard baseball. I grew up with all the kids in my neighborhood uh, playing both sports. Uh, We did all kinds of stuff together. Uh, You know, my mom would always have to call us in uh, to dinner from the baseball field or football field. Uh, but I was always playing one sport or the other, and uh, it was a it was a great upbringing. And you know, despite the fact that you know, uh, growing up, my mom had gotten divorced when I was six years old, and uh, got remarried when I was nine. And uh, my stepfather was not um, a good person, um, and uh, he had an alcohol problem and uh, had had a lot of issues. So uh, there was some turmoil in our family, but. In terms of uh, my life and, and uh, growing up where uh, we lived, you know, I just made do uh, and uh, always had a lot of friends and uh, we played a lot of baseball, a lot of football uh, growing up. And uh, so that was really uh, my introduction to, uh, to sports was playing in the neighborhood. Sure. And d- did I read correctly, um, th- the Major League Baseball pitcher, Bob Shirley, and also the pro basketball player, Alvin Adams, 
uh, Shirley, who played for like the Yankees and the Padres and Adams, who played at Oklahoma and then for Phoenix for lo both long careers. They were both right around your class, right? They are. They, we were in the same class. And uh, so that's kind of a distinction that we have of having one football player, one uh, basketball player and one baseball player coming out of the same class and having long careers. I think yeah. Alvin played almost 10 years. Bob played 10 years, I know. And then I played 14 years. So that was, uh, those were long careers. Yeah. No pro hockey players, huh? No hockey, not, not in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and uh, were you, were you always receiver? I think I saw in your hall of fame speech, you said something like you thanked your high school coach for demoting you to wide receiver. Right. I think that's what it was. Uh, I, I came in as a, as a running back uh, as a sophomore in high school. And he said, no, we're going to put you at wide receiver. And I said, wide receiver? I've, I've never played wide receiver. And so uh, if I was going to play, it was going to be as wide receiver, according to this coach. And uh, so I just gave it all that I could and, and uh, was able to, you know, make the transition. But, yeah, I was a running back uh, until he demoted me uh, to <laughs> wide receiver as a sophomore. You know, that was at a time when you didn't really throw the ball a lot. And – so I, I thought, you know, I, I want to be around the ball. I want to carry the ball. I want to, you know, do things that you do as a, as a running back. Uh, but honestly, it was the best decision that could have ever been made for me uh, is to be demoted and uh, turned into a wide receiver. And I just, I just gave it everything I had and uh, worked really hard and ended up uh, being able to play some as a sophomore. Uh, and that was at a time when our, our, we had the largest high school in the state. Uh, had uh, over a thousand people in a class. And so it was hard to be able to play any as a sophomore. And then hopefully, you know, if you, if you were pretty good, you could play as a junior and, and senior. Uh, but I got to play as a sophomore and that really uh, cemented my, uh, my, my football career uh, at that school um, is being able to play, play some, play some ball. Sure. And, and how did you end up at Tulsa? I mean, did, were, did, you, did you have any conversation with Oklahoma or Oklahoma State or Big 8 schools or Texas schools? Or was yeah, it I, was, I was recruited by Oklahoma State. I, wasn't, I never got recruited by Oklahoma. And they, you know, they signed Tinker Owens the same year. I was a senior. He was a senior. Sure. Uh, and they didn't need any more uh, receivers because they were running a wishbone. So, you know, if you got one or two passes a game, that was good. And that's what Tinker Owens caught, one or two passes a game. Sure. And uh, I, I didn't really want to go to OU uh, because I, I wanted to go to a school that threw the ball. And Tulsa was one of the few schools uh, that I was recruited by that threw the ball very often at all. And they were known for having a, a strong passing game. And so and it was my grandfather, who was actually a big TU fan, uh, who whispered in my ear, you know, I think you ought to look at, at Tulsa. He had been following Tulsa, you know, most of his life listening to the games on the radio or whatever and uh, really liked what they did and liked the school. And of course I wasn't even thinking about school. I was thinking about football, but uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, I listened to my grandfather a lot. And uh, so when he spoke those words to me, I, I took them seriously and uh, I was recruited by TU. And when I came to the school, I saw all the you know, positive uh, effects that a, a good education can give to you. And um, so I, I came to TU. Yeah. And when you got there, there was a guy named Drew Pearson. You're a freshman. He's a senior, right? Right. He was a senior. 
And so I'm, I'm just fascinated who, who just went into the Hall of Fame himself. Uh, right. either, I think it was last year, right? I think it was um, this year. Maybe oh, it was yeah. last year, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and also Ray Rhodes, who went on to have a pro career and then coached the Eagles and the uh, Packers. Right. Um, so they're both – and Rhodes is kind of a running back receiver hybrid – and and Pearson's there. What what was it like being with those guys? Did you you know did you kind of pick anything up from them? Yeah, you're right. When I was a seed, when I was a, a freshman, uh, I played with Drew, and he, he of course was a starting receiver, and he was opposite Raymond Rhodes. So Raymond and um, uh, Drew were the receivers when I was a freshman. Then when I was a sophomore, I actually was the other starting receiver with Ray with Ray Rhodes, and so we had we had a good tandem uh, uh, myself and and Rhodes, but, um, you know, then I, I got to watch the whole year. Uh, I basically watched Drew Pearson playing football uh, in, at TU, and, and he was a heck of an athlete. He was a quarterback in high school, in high school but uh, played receiver. Actually, he was a – I think I, he was a quarterback. Yeah, he was a quarterback, and then he, then he became a receiver. And uh, he was just so smooth and caught the ball so easily. Uh, he was a great guy to watch, a great example that he set for – the rest of us watching him, uh, but uh, I was sure glad to see him get into the Hall of Fame, and so was he. Yeah, yeah, that, that was cool to see. Um, and uh, during your freshman year, the, the head coach is, is let go, and they bring in uh, a new coach, F.A. Dry, right. and, uh, and you guys start winning almost immediately under him. And um, you, your junior and senior year, you lead the nation in receiving touchdowns. And at that point, the offensive coordinator is a guy who used to be a quarterback at Tulsa name and who had played in the NFL for like a decade, Jerry Rome, yeah. um, who would become a recurring theme for the rest of your career. Um, what was it like when Jerry Rome came in? You know, did you immediately, you know, kind of click with him or what was that like? Well, actually, what happened was um, that uh, Jerry came in when I was a sophomore, like you said, but um, uh, F.A. Dry was the athletic director when I went to the school. Okay. So he was athletic director and had another head coach. Didn't end up not liking the coach because uh, there was a lot of different reasons. Some of them had to do with his football, but a lot of it had off-field stuff. Uh, he fired him as the athletic director. He fired him and then named himself as the head coach and the athletic director. Okay. So uh, that, that's, what, that's how F.A. came into power. But uh, F.A. was a great guy, still a great guy. He was here at school. Uh, probably a year ago, and and uh, still a great guy, and uh, really a really uh, mild mannered guy, uh, but knew a lot about the game, and so uh, I learned a lot from FA, and and then he hired Jerry Rome to come in when I was a sophomore. Jerry came in, uh, my well, actually came in the spring of my freshman year, was there all spring, and put in a bunch of his the passing game was basically Jerry's passing game, but he was the offensive coordinator uh, at TU. And uh, I just learned a lot from him. Uh, and, and the things I learned was, you know, how to hustle and how to uh, read defenses and how to, you know, um, uh, actually draw plays up uh, that were functional and worked and made sense. And uh, he just taught me a lot about the game. Uh, sure. And he was coming from, like you said, as an NFL, former NFL quarterback, uh, he, he knew a lot about the game and could put it on paper and and uh, and make it come to reality. So, yeah, that was a real uh, boon to my career was uh, having a, a great coach like Jerry Rome and F.A. Dry. 
Yeah. And I got a kick out of So I guess your last couple of years there, the quarterback is a guy named Jeb Blunt. Yeah. Who played a little bit in the NFL a couple of years, like with the Raiders and the Buccaneers. But I read a great story that he, somebody asked him, how did you become such an accurate passer? And he said, I guess he grew up on a farm and he said, he used to throw a football at the head of the biggest bull and the bull would start running and the rest of the cattle would follow him. And that's how we learned. <laughs> that's how he learned the passing accuracy. Uh... That's fine. That sounds like Jeff. He is from Texas, uh, <laughs> but uh, he, he, he's a really, uh, he's a, he's a great guy. He went into TU's hall of fame just this past year. Uh, but uh, he, he really is a great guy and uh, a good fella. and was, was uh, a good quarterback. Yeah. Um, and so, so you, you lead the nation in touchdown catches and uh, well, I, I have to ask uh, you're there at about the same time Nancy Lopez is. Um, uh-huh. Anybody who listens to my podcast, Nancy Lopez is the last one I posted. I just happen to have two Tulsa grads in a row. Um, did, was, did you ever overlap with Nancy? Did you ever like? Oh, yeah. yeah, she was probably a freshman when I was uh, probably a junior or senior. I think it was a junior because she was there. I think she was there more than two years with me. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so I graduated in 76. So she would have graduated in 78 or something. I don't know if she graduated from college, but. Um, uh, she was about two years behind me and it was such a joy to watch her play. Uh, and she was talented when she came into TU, uh, but she really blossomed in the, you know, those years through college and, and then on into the pros. It was fun watching her. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, I think, I think she, um, I think while she was still at Tulsa, she like finished in the runner up for the U S open or something. And that that's when she knew it was time, <laughs> time to go pro. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um <laughs> But uh, and so so then so coming out, you get drafted by the Oilers in the fourth round. Bum Phillips is the coach and they've got Billy White Shoes Johnson and Ken Burroughs. So they obviously got two pretty good wide receivers there. Um, but about four games, this is back when they played six preseason games, about four games in, they tell you it's not going to happen here. We're, we're basically we're going to cut you. And then and then they end up not cutting you, but they trade you up to Seattle. Tell me about like, you know, kind of what was going through your mind at that point. You know, well, it was a blessing, not a curse, as it felt uh, at the time. You know, I felt like it was more like a curse than it was a blessing. But, uh, yeah, they Bum was really straightforward with me. He said, look, we just don't have room for you. And so we're going to let you go and give you a chance with somebody else. And uh, good luck. That was about it. Uh, and there wasn't a lot. I mean, after, after he said, Steve, we're going to let you go, everything else was blah, 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 because all, all my head was thinking about was, what do I do now? Uh, how do I put my degree to work? Because now I'm, I'm out in the, the workplace with, with uh, people trying to find a job. Yeah. And uh, then that's when they, they, they made a trade for me because Jerry Rome, he had become the uh, uh, receiver and quarterback coach for the Seahawks. Right. And when he saw my name on the waiver wire, or they, they told him that, see, what happened was Jerry had been up there trying to get them to draft me, the Seahawks. And they didn't draft me. And so when my name was over the waiver wires being released, they were showing him my name on the waiver wire and telling him, this is why we didn't draft him because he's not very good. And so uh, Jerry said, Jerry went to work and started talking to the head coach and said, Hey, we got, we, this is a guy we should have on our team. He'll, He'll make the team. And so he really went out overboard and, uh, uh, to get me. And so they ended up working out a trade for a, 
I think it was an eighth round draft choice. And so they, uh, they traded me for an eighth round draft choice. And uh, I got a call from Seattle and said, hey, we traded for you. Uh, we'd love to have you if, if you want to come up here. And so I said, well, absolutely, I want to come up there. We're, you know, give me a ticket and I'm coming. And so I packed everything I owned in, about, in a bag about this big and about this big and uh, took it with me and said, I'm going to give this another shot. And so I go up to Seattle. And the great thing about it, one, was that Jerry was there. And the very first practice, I dropped a few balls. And uh, he said, hey, look, you just play the way you played at Tulsa, and you'll make this team. And, man, just saying that, everything else, you know, all the weight on my shoulders just went away. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, he's right. I, I just need to play the way I played at TU. And Jerry says, I'll make the team. And I don't have to do anything new or different or uh, fancy or anything like that. So, uh, you know, once that happened, I started catching the ball more consistently. And the great thing was, uh, beyond that, was that Jerry had implemented our entire passing game from the University of Tulsa into the Seahawks playbook. So all the pass routes I'd been running, running for three years were named and called exactly the same in the huddle. So I knew exactly where to line up, exactly how deep the route was going to be, exactly when the quarterback was going to uh, throw me the ball. And I, I'd been doing that for three years. So yeah. it was like it was fast forward for me uh, in making the team at, at the Seahawks because I knew the whole playbook. Right. So that was a real advantage for me. Yeah. And, and the quarterback who, if I, if I recall correctly, was similarly, you know, kind of cut or about to be waived or whatever. Zorn had been with Dallas, right? He'd been with Dallas the year before. Jim's one year older than I am. So okay. he'd been with Dallas and they waived him when somebody, the, the Dallas Cowboys had picked up, it was either a running back or a, or a uh, defensive back. I can't remember which one it is, but the, they picked up that defensive back or running back and uh, they waived Jim. And okay. so he was, he went, uh, they, they waived him. The Cowboys waived him, but they said, Hey, we got a job for you during the season. If you want to come out and kind of, they kind of hit him in the roster, come out and practice with us and then work with this other person, uh, after that, and you can make some money. And, uh, and then if, if we need a quarterback, then we'll, we'll, we'll take you, we'll pick you back up. And so, uh, they ended up uh, doing that for a little while. And then Jim had a, uh, a similar offer from the Rams. And so he went to LA for the rest of the year and uh, was kind of practicing with them. Uh, and I guess they did that more commonly back then. I don't know. But uh, so he practiced with the Rams for a little bit and was with them during the off season and the Seahawks picked him up uh, right away. So uh, he was already with the team uh, when I got there and, uh, and had, had kind of solidified himself as the number one quarterback. Okay. Was it, was it, was it hard for you catching balls from a lefty or not that big an adjustment? You know, it, 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 there wasn't any adjustment at all. Uh, okay. It wasn't hard at all. Uh, Jim threw a great spiral and, and uh, was on the money. So, you know, that's all you care about is uh, where the ball is and, and make sure you're open when he's throwing it to you. But uh uh, yeah, Jim was a, an easy quarterback to align myself with. And, uh, you know, we, we, we became a pretty impressive combination. Yeah. 
And so you're, you're in Seattle, which is an expansion team, but you're a rookie anyway. So it's not like you've been with some established. Right. Yeah. Um, Mike Curtis is on the team, um, you know, from the legendary mad dog from the Colts. And, and also when you were in Houston, Bubba Smith was in training camp, right? Yes. Uh, also from that same Colts team, yeah. um, you know, those kind of great late sixties, early seventies Colts teams. What, what were those guys like? Did you, you know, have much interaction with them, Bubba Smith and, and Mike Curtis? Uh, well, Bubba Wood and I were in the same training camp. Uh, and so I got to just kind of listen to, you know, I was like a fly on the wall uh, and just listen to his stories and tales uh, that he told about uh, uh, life gone by. Uh, Curtis was another, his nickname was Face. We called him Face just because he had the ugliest face that he could make while he was playing football. Uh, but uh, Mike was, Mike was a, an intense competitor. I mean, the, the guy was just intense. He didn't take any slack from anybody on the other team, on your team, the coach, nothing. Uh, he knew where he was supposed to be and when he was supposed to be there. And you didn't need to tell him anything else. Uh, but he was, uh, he really was a, was a nice guy off the field. Uh, uh, so uh, a lot of his uh, uh, reputation was, was well-earned on the field. But off the field, he was—he really was a good guy, and uh, I, I really enjoyed playing with him too. I mean, he had a lot of stories about uh, football in the days gone by, and I always enjoyed listening to him and, and uh, talking with him. Yeah, and he, he somebody—I know somebody who knew him a little bit in business. This is maybe 15 years ago, and said, you know, you, you meet a lot of guys over the years with you know firm handshakes, and they said, literally, Rich could break your hand. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something face would do. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, and your coach is Jack Patera and the Seahawks. I mean, Seattle, are, no, I'm sorry, you know, the other expansion team that year was Tampa Bay and they mm-hmm. come in and they lose every game the first year and they lose the first 12 games their second year. They're off to a tough start. You guys are actually pretty competitive. You win a couple of games um, your first year. You win five one games. Of was, one of them was against Tampa Bay. Right, exactly. So <laughs> ensure that somebody gets a win, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but and then your second year, you guys win five games. So you're off to a pretty decent start as an expansion team. Obviously, you and Jim Zorn are clicking. Um, defense isn't stopping too many people at that point. But and Jack Patera is the head coach, and he had kind of made his bones as a D-line coach with the right. Rams, the fearsome foursome, and then my Vikings, the, the purple people eaters. Was it, did it kind of eat at him that the defense, he just couldn't get the defense, you know, going in those first couple of years? Yes, it did. Uh, Cause like you said, he was a defensive minded head coach. Uh, and, and you would think that that would have been the, the, the uh, role of the team would be have a strong defense first and then the offense they'll, they'll nurse along. But it was just the opposite. We had a great offense. Uh, we threw the ball a lot. Uh, we had a good running game. Uh, so we, we really had a lot of the pieces to a good offense, uh, but our, our defense wasn't very good at all. And, you know, uh, maybe it was that he was depending on too many old guys uh, to come and play in Seattle. But, uh, you know, o- over time, they definitely improved the, the defense. Um, but, yeah, it, that was definitely uh, a weak point in our, uh, in our repertoire was our defense at first. Yeah. Um... And uh, one guy you had on the team, and it's funny, I was talking to, to Charlie Joyner about this, 
because uh, before San Diego, he was in Cincinnati. And I was saying, you know, what was it like in practice going up against some of the guys? Because I, I was saying, Ken Riley, how is that guy not in the Hall of Fame? He's one of the top, you know, whatever, five or 10 interceptors of all time. And it, he, he agreed. He, he couldn't believe it. Another guy who I've always thought about, and I'm not a huge Seahawks fan, so it's not like I'm talking my book here. Dave Brown uh, is coming out of Michigan, has a nice long career. I know he's passed away now. The guy had like 60 or 65 interceptions. It's just staggering to me he's not in the Hall of Fame. I'm curious your take on Dave and also just, you know, what it was like going up against him in practice. Uh, but Dave, Dave was just a prince of a guy, uh, really disciplined, uh, organized, uh, w- was a, a strict, you know, study uh, guy, studied his, the opponents. Uh, he knew how to run the plays, the defenses they ran uh, better than the coaches coaching him. So uh, he was just really a smart guy, a sharp guy, uh, was pretty fast uh, and, and could really, really cover you. But, and, and the, the great thing that Dave did was make me a better football player, uh, make me a better receiver. Going against him every day at practice uh, just helped me a ton. Uh, because I figured if I can catch the ball against Dave Brown, I can catch it against a, a whole lot of people in the NFL uh, because they really are. I mean, he really was that good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, and, and Dave passed away uh, some number of years ago. He was a close friend of mine um, and just really a, a, a godly man and, and a good man and a great football player. And and a couple of years, I guess, I guess in kind of your fifth or sixth year there, then you draft Kenny Easley, yes. uh, safety who is in the hall. Eighty-one, yeah, eighty-one, yeah. Comes out of UCLA, and and you know we we can talk more about the end of his career in a few minutes, but um, doesn't have a long career, but still goes into the Hall of Fame because of the impact he had in those seven or eight years that he did play. Um, what was it like when he came in? Did you just kind of look and go, "Whoa, that the secondary just changed with him there." Yeah, the, the, the trajectory of our team definitely changed with the addition of Kenny Easley. I'll, I'll never forget when he came out for his first – it wasn't even the first practice. It was the first – we were working out at the facility just on our own. And so we had a little, you know, passing game. So Jim was out there and receivers would be out there and other defensive backs would be out there. And, you know, their defensive backs were trying to cover us and we're trying to get open. And, but he came out the very first day that, that he was in town – uh, came out to practice and he covered me every, every time I came up on the line, he wanted to cover me. And this is a guy that just came out of college. He just was drafted and uh, first, first round guy, but uh, you wouldn't think he would be, uh, he wasn't intimidated at all is what I'm trying to say sure. uh, by the fact that, you know, at that point I was, I played for five or six years and I had been to a couple of pro bowls, but he wanted to cover me. And you know, he was a safety. He wasn't, he wasn't a cornerback, uh, but he, he did a great job. And so we, we, we knew, I mean, he, he turned heads uh, just coming out to those initial uh, uh, workouts that we had uh, with the way he could cover and run. Uh, he, was, he was tall. Uh, he was kind of lanky, a little, little like uh, Mike Haynes, uh, but played safety instead of a cornerback, uh, but had that same um, – type of potential as Mike Haynes. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and also kind of in that period of time, the 82 strike hits, 
And Patera has been the coach for, you know, whatever, since you're the beginning of the team since 76. Right. And two games into the season, the strike is called and basically the league is shut down for better part of two months. Um, during the strike, he's let go. What, what was that like? You know, you're, you're hoping the season's going to come back and it ultimately it does, but while he's gone, you lose your coach. What was that like for the players? Yeah. You know, um, it was, it was, uh, difficult um and they'd also brought in mike mccormick to be the like general manager of the club and uh, mike was the one that made the decision uh, ultimately uh the owners i think conspired against jack a little bit but uh, uh primarily it was i mean mike mccormick's responsibility he ends up coaching the team the rest of the year and then uh, chuck knox came in the the following year in 83 uh and i'm sure it was a hard decision on mike because uh, uh, he was pretty close to, to Jack and uh, all of us who, who played for him, you know, we, we generally liked Jack, uh, but um, he, he just, I guess he just wasn't a fit. They didn't feel like he was a fit in Seattle. Um, and it was a, it was a hard decision uh, that was made, but, you know, I think as a player, one thing that I did was, um, you know, I, I, I always felt like that that wasn't my decision. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't have made that decision, but that wasn't my job either. Uh, and so I, I just focused on what I needed to do and uh, how I needed to do it and who I needed to do it with. And uh, I, I and so it was like, you know, that that decision has been made and nothing's I, I can't change it. So uh, let's get on with the next day and next game and next yeah. season. Yeah, and, and you bring in Chuck Knox, who's obviously had a ton of success with the Rams during the 70s, just, but just couldn't get past the Cowboys and the Vikings, yeah. um, but was winning the NFC West every year. Then he went up to Buffalo and had success there, um, <clears throat> and then comes in. And obviously the nickname was Ground Chuck because he was you know, kind of a big believer in running game and defense. Yeah. You're a wide receiver. So I'm wondering, you know, and, and the first guy he drafts is Kurt Warner out of Penn State, who's really good. Yeah. Your first thought, like, wait a second, what, what's happening here? Or what was your take when he came in? Well, I think I, I was um, I was blessed by the fact that we didn't have a great offensive line. We had a serviceable offensive line. Uh, so we had to throw the ball uh, when you're when you when you got third and 10 or third and eight, uh, you got to throw the ball in the NFL. And so uh, I was in a position where we had a quarterback, Jim, who uh, could really throw the ball. And, um, and we had some good receivers, Sam McCollum, myself, uh, and others. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was, I mean, I think Chuck looked at our offense and thought, you know, uh, Kurt Warner's great, uh, but, and, and he, he's, uh, he'll be our running back, but we got, we're going to have to throw the ball if we're going to move down the field. And uh, so we, we did, we, we actually um, uh, were, were, were very good at uh, throwing the ball in 83. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like when you look at your stats, I mean, your stats obviously great across the, the entirety of your career, but it's like they almost took off when he came in, which is ironic given his background with the running game and bringing right. in the running back. Yeah. Um, and then fairly shortly thereafter, all of a sudden you're starting to build up the defense too. All of a sudden the, the, the three, four, your front three is all of them are going to the pro bowl every year. Uh, 
And so you've got them and you've got, uh, you know, you've got Dave Brown and easily all of a sudden the defense is locked in and you guys have a couple nice runs in the playoffs in 83, you go to the AFC championship game, but yeah. lose to Oakland, which must've just been a gutter because you'd beaten them twice that year. Right. Right. We beat them twice in the regular season because we were in the AFC West with us, or we were in the AFC West with them. Um, and we, we beat them twice, but uh, you know, Marcus Allen, uh, really put on a show in the playoffs that year and uh, was basically unstoppable. But uh, we played them in, uh, in L.A. They were playing in L.A. then, not Oakland. And, right. um, and they beat us there. And it's a fairly close game, but, you know, they went on to win the Super Bowl. So we couldn't complain about that. Yeah, legit team. Um, and in the, in the game before that, you guys are playing Miami. And Miami is, for the most part, shutting you off. Like, you're, you're down to the last two minutes of the game. You don't have a catch. And then you make a catch that, uh, like, a 15 or 16-yarder for a first down that looked really awkward. It almost looked like you blew your knee the way you kind of hit the ground. And then on the next play or, or within, a, you know, a couple of plays of that, you run what I saw in an interview of Dave Craig later say is one of the hardest routes to run, like a post-flag uh -huh. uh, combination. Yeah. And so t tell me about like kind of as that game was winding down, you know, kind of wh where your mind was and tell me about those two big catches that basically led to the victory. Well, at halftime, we were ahead in the game. We were ahead by 10 points, I think, something like that. Yeah. And uh, this was when Dan Marino, I think it was his rookie year or second year in the league. It wasn't any more than that. Uh, but he was firing, firing to Duper and Clayton and just moving the ball down the field easily. And uh, so we knew we had a tough game on our hands and, uh, we, we went ahead, though, in the first half, and we were ahead. And then uh, I think uh, they scored a touchdown, uh, and, uh, and, and then we came back, and we didn't do anything with the ball. And they scored another touchdown uh, after that. And so now they're ahead by four points or something like that. And we get the ball again, and we've only got, you know, two or three or four minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. So, you know, it's now or never. And uh, one of the first plays Dave called was a deep square in, uh, on the left side, I was on the left side, and I caught the ball, and we gained, I don't know, maybe, like I said, 16, 17, 18, 20 yards. And uh, then the very next play, I lined up on the right side, and I had a post corner. And uh, the I can't remember the name of the defensive back uh, that I was running against, but I ran a post corner. And, and when I Might broke it, Judson. That's who it was. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I beat him on the post and then cut back to the corner was wide open. And Dave laid a perfect ball into me and I took it all the way down. I was on the, maybe the, our, our 40 yard line or something like that and uh, took it to uh, the two yard line. And then Kurt punched it over uh, to, to win. And so they had the ball uh, back when I think they had it maybe with a minute left or something like that. And, uh, we kicked off to them and our defense held and we won the game. So it was really a, it was a, it was a great game. That's cool. Going on the road, not easy to do down in no, Miami. Especially Miami. They had, they had a very vocal crowd. Yeah. They, they were the, I think they were the top seed in the AFC that year, I think. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Cause you had had to play the wild card the week before right. you played Elway in his rookie year, I think. Yeah. You, you, I think you lined up against a couple of those guys. Um, yeah. So if you were in the wild card game, that means Miami was the one seed. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that happened that year, yeah. From 76 until that 83 season, yeah. um, 
uh, Jim Zorn's your quarterback. During the year, Chuck Knox makes a switch for Dave Craig. It's got to be tough. You and Zorn are good friends. Um, and obviously, it, you know, it strikes me that your relationship with Craig is good, too. But as a receiver, what's that like, you know, middle of the season? It's really hard uh, because Jim and I were not only, you know, teammates, we were also friends, best friends. I, I just went fishing with him last week in Alaska. Huh. Yeah, so I just got back. So, yeah, it was uh, it, it was really hard on, I mean, especially hard on Jim, but it was hard on me, too, to figure out, you know, how, how do I communicate with Jim, make sure he knows that, you know, we're, we're still uh, together. Uh, but I've got to connect with this other quarterback uh, who also is a great guy and uh, I really liked. And, and, you know, he's my number one quarterback now. Uh, so it was, it was awkward to say the least uh, just to, uh, for all of us to figure out how we work together. Um, and at, at the end of the day, they ended up uh, letting Jim go, I think, uh, in the off season. Jim was there for that uh, 83 season. Uh, maybe 84, but they let him go at the end of the season. And, uh, uh, but Jim's maintained his house in Seattle uh, while he went, he played, I think for green Bay first. And uh, then he went down to Tampa Bay and then that was pretty much the end of his career. Then he started coaching. So. Yeah. Um, but that was hard. Well, you're right. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago when they let Jack Patera go, like sometimes you just have to say, I have a job to do. I will just do my job. That's, and I had to do exactly the same thing when Jack Patera was left uh, and, and same thing that happened when, when Jim left. Yeah. Um, and uh, then in 84, you guys are 12 and four, you guys have a great season. Um, and and it, it goes without saying, but I'll just mention it here. It, your numbers are just so amazingly consistent. It's like between 68 and, you know, 75 catches every year, 11 or 1200 yards, you know, seven, eight, nine touchdowns. I mean, it's just amazing every single year outside of a couple strike seasons and stuff like that. Um, 84 though, your team goes 12 and four um, and, and you beat the Raiders in the playoffs, but then you lose to, to Marino and the Dolphins. Um, Franco Harris is on that team. You know, a lot of people forget that, you know, at the very end of his career, he popped up to Seattle for a few games. What was it like having him in the locker room? You know, Franco is just, uh, he, he's just like he, he seemed. He's just a big uh, running back who has a great smile on his face all the time. Uh, he's a soft-spoken guy. Uh, and, and, you know, he just, he, he just a really winnable type guy. Uh, and then he came to our team and, and he knew what the situation was. He was on his last leg and uh, he was kind of a backup and uh, uh, in Seattle, but he, he played, he was serviceable. He, I mean, he, he played some for us, uh, but you know, it was more of the type of things that you'd hear him say to you in any given game, you know, we're coming into a big game, maybe it's a playoff game. And uh, you know, he'll talk about, you know, the playoff games that they had in Pittsburgh and he played in a lot of them, played in a lot of Super Bowls. So, uh, you know, just, he had, he had a lot of respect on the team, uh, but was just a great guy and, and he's still uh, a good friend. Yeah. I, I was fascinated. I, uh, I had a chance to interview Mel Blunt on this show maybe two months ago. And I was curious because Mel was one of the early guys coming in. It was, it was Joe yeah. Green and Bradshaw and Mel were like the, of, of all those hall of famers, they were like the first three in and I was saying to him, when did you guys know? Because, you know, early on, the team was still struggling. I said, when did you know? And he said, that's easy. When we got Franco, he said, that changed everything. And it was just interesting to me, like of all those big names, that was the guy who just, 
that's when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's interesting. Um, and then, and then in the 86 season about, well, early in the season, whatever it was, you break Harold Carmichael's record for consecutive games with a catch. Um, what, what did that mean to you? I mean, on the one hand, it's your job, you're a wide receiver, you go to games, you catch passes. But on the other hand, I mean, obviously the game's been played for a long time and to break a record like that shows obviously skill, but also longevity. What, what did it mean to you and the team? Well, you know what? The coolest thing about that was the fact that Harold Carmichael uh, left Philadelphia or wherever he was living and flew to Seattle to be there at the game that I broke his record. Oh, that's cool. That, that, just, that just meant the world to me and still does. Yeah. Uh, to think that, you know, here's a guy, he doesn't have to fly across the country to come to Seattle to a game that I may or may not catch a pass. Um, you know, but he did. And I, to me, it was just a, a symbol of the class that he had. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate it. But it was, uh, you know, it was really cool to, to uh, break his record, uh, but then to shake his hand uh, right after. I mean, they, they stopped the game. And, uh, and he came out on the field and uh, shook my hand and all that stuff. But uh, it just it, it meant a lot to me, that the fact that he would uh, come out and, and do that. Yeah. You know, it's funny, we're, we're, as we're talking about this, it just dawned on me, to, to reference Mel Blunt for the second time in like 30 seconds, uh, they went to college together. And he, Mel was a receiver coming into college. And I remember him saying, yeah, I got to college and Harold Carmichael was there. <laughs> and he's like, I looked at him and thought, I'm not beating that guy out. And they put him, <laughs> they put him at cornerback and, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, those are two two great guys. Uh, I mean, they're they're – their personalities are very much alike too. I mean, they're both kind of quiet, uh, laid back, uh, good guys, good football players. Uh, but man, they, you know, they would, uh, uh, Harold could, could catch anything you threw at him and, uh, Mel would knock your head off when he got the chance. Yeah. In fact, I, I think Mel said that he's like, I became good covering that guy every day in practice. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I read, you know, subsequent to that, that Harold said something about that, you know, with, you know, being covered by Mel. Um, that's funny. Uh, and then, and then there's a second strike, 87 strike season. And that's kind of a weird year because you guys are pretty good. You're nine and six. Um, you lose in the playoffs to the Oilers, which I, yeah, you lose in the playoffs to the Oilers. Um, that is the rookie year for Bosworth. Brian Bosworth came in that year, right? Uh-huh. And signs obviously a lot of hype and signs the biggest rookie contract of all time. What was it like when he came in the locker room, obviously huge name coming out of college. Yeah, he was. In fact, I remember being at the field when he flew a helicopter, he didn't fly the helicopter, but he was flown on a helicopter uh, into the field, landed in the middle of the football field, got out <laughs> of the helicopter, went up, signed his contract and all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, the Boz, he was, uh, he was something else. I, you know, uh, Brian is a great guy, uh, and he didn't, he, he wasn't a great guy in Seattle, but he's a great guy now. And, uh, I've talked to him several times. In fact, I talked to him just about a week ago mm-hmm. and, uh, he, he's doing really well, doing a lot of, you know, Hollywood stuff, uh, but, uh, lives in Austin. Uh, but he, he was a guy that he, he never lived up to the hype that he developed. Right. I mean, he developed the hype but he never lived up to it in the NFL. And that happens to a lot of people. Uh, just, just, 
guys that uh, were really good in college uh, but couldn't quite make it in the NFL. And I think I think sometimes uh, their their shadow um, is bigger than they are. And I think he was he was a perfect example of that. Uh, and and they just don't have what it takes or or they think they have what it takes and they don't implement it on the field and um, and they fail in the NFL. And, uh, and and Brian definitely, I think he would say that his his NFL career was a failure. Uh, but I think some of it had to do with some of the hype that he, he brought to the table uh, as a player. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I remember reading, I think it was his rookie. I mean, he only played like two or three years. Right. I, right. I think, I think, I think it was his rookie year. They're playing Denver and he's popping off. Or you're playing Denver and he's popping off about Elway and Denver fans can't wait to, you know, kind of boom and stuff. And he, makes t-shirts that say something like, you know, the boss, and it's a picture of Bozo with a red line through it. You know, the boss, he makes the t-shirts sells like 15,000 of them to Denver fans charges like 20 bucks a t-shirt, something like that. They yeah. have no idea as they fill the stadium with these t-shirts that he's profiting off of it. You yeah. know, on the, on the one hand genius, on the other hand, probably didn't have his focus on football at that point. <laughs> he's, I'm sure, I'm sure he, he, that wasn't his idea. Uh, but it was his agent's idea and, and he went along with it. Uh, but yeah, we didn't, nobody on the team knew about that until after the game either. Uh, right. So we, we didn't even know it, but uh, you know, you think, yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty ingenious. Yeah. Um, and, and that year also at, at the end of that year, Kenny easily um, is, there's kind of, I can't remember if it's a contract dispute or what, but he, he effectively is traded to the Cardinals and in going through the physical, it turns out he's got kidney issues and ultimately kidney failure. What was it like losing him as a teammate at that point? He, he was forced to retire. But yeah, I mean, losing a cog like that in the, the wheel that's been so successful over his career uh, is always hard. Um, and it's really it's, it's not so much his playing ability, it's his leadership uh, on the defense that uh, really hurt. Um, but yeah, yeah, he, he was, I mean, you know, Kenny's in the Hall of Fame and he's in there for a reason. Yeah. And, and then your last season, 89, coming into the year, and I'm, I, I know you're not driven by stats or anything like that, but, you know, you have to be aware that Don Hudson had 99 career touchdown catches and, you know, hundred is just such the perfect round number. You need three for the year. You're coming down to your last couple of games and you catch the hundredth pass uh, against Cincinnati in the end zone. You go up high to catch the ball. I see a great quote from Dave Craig. He says, yeah, well, he's so damn short that he, you know, <laughs> it, he made it look like I threw the ball high you know, just to add drama to it. <laughs> but what, what was that like that feeling of getting that hundredth touchdown? Uh, it, it was pretty satisfying. Um, you know, I had gotten hurt uh, in the second game, I think it was, maybe second or third game of the year, and missed six games of that season uh, because uh, so I can't remember what I hurt, but I hurt something. And um, it was pretty bad. So I was out six games because that was when they said, if you go out one game, you got to go out six games. So it didn't matter if you were well after three weeks, uh, you had to miss six weeks uh, any given time. So I missed those uh, middle six games 
and then came back to the last, I don't know, four or five games. And uh, uh, so it was, it was tight getting three, three touchdowns uh, to, to break that record. But I, I was focused on it, uh, but it wasn't, but it wasn't something that, you know, I thought about the whole game. I never thought about it any uh, as the games went on. But, uh, you know, when I, when I did catch the uh, 100, 100 touchdown pass, it was pretty cool. Uh, and, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to do that. Yeah. And, and I saw that uh, in the locker room afterwards or, or at some point afterwards, you gave the jersey that you wore that game uh, to, to Pete Gross, who yeah. was a broadcaster who at the time was dying of cancer. So yeah. tell me about that. Well, Pete, Pete was always a, a good friend uh, to all the players uh, and to me too. And he was kind of a little bit like a father figure, uh, if you can believe that. But he, uh, he just was a, a good man, had a great heart, uh, always had a, you know, uh, he had a gentle spirit. And uh, people just liked Pete. Uh, and if you knew Pete, you, you'd know why. Uh, but uh, I, just thought, I just thought, you know, he's, he's facing some tough times and he's coming through. Uh, but I just thought it was uh, appropriate that he had that jersey. Yeah. Um, now, so it's interesting. You cannot read an article about you without seeing four things come up every single time. Great hands, great route runner, undersized, slow. Every single, <laughs> every single one. And yeah. obviously the size and the, and the speed, there's not a ton you can do about that. Obviously the hands and the route, you can't. I'm fascinated by two things. The catching, I've read that you had a buddy who was into skeet shooting and he would aim for the edge of the skeet, the clay to yeah. shoot. And yeah. that you incorporated that into football. Tell, tell me about how you, you know, kind of focused your, your concentration on catching a football. No, that's, that's easy. And, and, um, and I talk about it all the time. Uh, but when, when you're, you're hunting, I mean, when you're shooting trap and skeet, what he always taught me was, to keep your eye on the leading edge of the, the trap or ski and, um, and, and, and shoot. Uh, and so that thought uh, just resonated in my mind in terms of catching a football. So what I tried to do was, you know, when everybody, every coach, when you line up as a receiver, every coach, whether it's high school, college, or pros, uh, will always tell a receiver, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball. Well, what I always, what I, what I, what I figured out was, you got to keep your eye on the tip of the ball. That will make you um, hone in your concentration on one thing, the tip of the ball. Now, if the quarterback doesn't throw a spiral, that's a little harder to do. But you know, uh, that's what I would try to do is to hone in on the tip of the ball and not the whole ball. Uh, and there's a difference. And it, what it does, it amps up your concentration your ability to, to catch the ball becomes a lot better. Uh, and so that's, that's what I always tried to do uh, was, was watch the tip of the ball. And, I, and when I teach my kids or my grandkids or kids anywhere, uh, that's what I always talk about is route running and how to catch that ball consistently. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And, and it's funny because then you, you see, you know, kind of a variety of people comment on your, on your route running. Lenny Dawson says he doesn't look real fast, but he always gets open. He can run four different slant patterns that'll twist up a DB. Um, is this a, a conscious thing for you? I mean, obviously it is, but you know, did you like teach yourself, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a four, three guy. Here's what I have to do to, you know, to be able to get separation. Tell me about like, you know, the thought process there. 
Well, uh, I, I wish I had the speed of, uh, you know, some other players, uh, but I didn't. And so I just had to work with what I had. And what I found was, is that it's, it's not so important how fast you run. It's how well you separate and separation uh, doesn't have a lot, doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with your speed. Uh, it has to be the way you set up a defensive back uh, and uh, you break uh, in a certain direction. You're trying to get him to go one direction while you're going another direction uh, to catch the ball. And, you know, that's just a, a matter of, uh, you know, your work ethic and uh, having that kind of mindset. And then you, you focus on the tip of the ball. Uh, and that's what, that's what I tried to do. Yeah. And it's funny. Um, Chris Collinsworth said that what you just said, he said, look, he sets guys up and then he humiliates them with the route he runs, you know, coming out of it. Um, and I think you even said uh, you, your whole goal was to go into and out of your route fast. So, right. you know, coming in economy of steps in it and then, you know, burst out and that's right. where you get separation. Yeah. You know, I actually learned from Fred Belenikoff he, because Fred was the only receiver I ever knew who had numbers for his routes. So he would run a post route, he'd run or, or an out route, whatever. He would run six steps and then break, go three steps and then break and the ball's there on a post route. So he'd run six, he'd run six steps towards the inside shoulder of the cornerback, three steps to his outside shoulder, and then break on his post route. So he had the mindset of counting his steps, not, not in a game, obviously, but in practice, so that he, he, he had a discipline about how he ran his routes. Uh, the problem was is that by the time I was playing, and this was at the end of Fred's career, uh, there were defensive backs that – were great defensive backs. It's more difficult to, you know, have a counting system on your route running. You had to be a little more creative sometimes. And, right. uh, but, but the mentality that Fred had that when he played, he was thinking about what he's doing. He didn't, he didn't go out there and make it, didn't just happen to happen to him, but he, uh, he has had a system. Uh, he had a plan. And that's what I tried to do is, is to have a system or a plan uh, when I played the game. And so it made catching the ball easier. It made running routes easier, regardless of the, how the defense was playing, man coverage, zone coverage, bump and run. Uh, it didn't matter because uh, I, I, I knew what I was doing and could focus on that. And then, you know, uh, anybody will tell you that the most important job that a receiver has is catching the ball. If you don't catch the ball, you're not going to be a very good receiver. You, you won't make it in the NFL. And so I, I had a system for catching the ball too. And it, and it worked for me for a long time. Yeah. And I guess the ultimate compliment is, you know, the guy who came along and, and, you know, beat some of your records, Jerry Rice, yeah. he you know, cites watching you because he too was a guy who was never known for blazing speed. And he said, look, I watched him and it was all about, you know, coming in and out of your routes and not wasting steps and getting separation. It's all, it, you know, makes sense. There's a logic to it. Yeah. Um, I also thought you got a, a, an unbelievable compliment. Rod Woodson said there's great athletes and there's great football players, and they're two different things. Largent was a great football player. Yeah. Um, I'd say you weren't a great athlete too. Obviously, you're not in the Hall of Fame for not being it, but like to be a great football player is a different thing. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, and uh, 
I thought it was interesting. Kenny easily said that uh, he talks about today's wide receivers and he said that they all wear tackified gloves and that you never wore a glove once. Was, was it something, was it against the rule? It wasn't against the rules, was it? Or did you just choose not to do it? Well, it was, yeah, it wasn't against the rules, I guess, because you could wear gloves if it was cold and people wore uh, gloves when it was colder. Uh, But uh, yeah, if, if, if I had the equipment, the gloves that they have today, I absolutely would have worn them because it is so much easier to catch the ball, every ball, when you've got those gloves on. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't play in this era. Uh, and so I, I, I played in a different era. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel like that I needed gloves. I didn't need, I didn't, didn't need any stick them because you could wear stick them back then. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and I tried it in practice, but it was so messy. I just, I didn't even like it at all. Yeah. Speaking of Blitnikoff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You coming off all over the place. Um, Yeah. And he's, and easily even said, look, he was the best I played against or with, you know, my, my whole career. Um, Yeah. I have to ask you about the Mike Harden uh, uh, plays. So towards the end of your career, uh, you run, was it a, it was an in route, right? Yeah. It's like like a corner route. I mean, like post post route. A post route. You're coming in. You're making the catch and he comes in and he's got like some kind of padding or something on his arm, right. like a cast or something, and hits you right into the face and yeah. you go down immediately. Yeah. Um, broke my face mask. Broke, broke your face mask, chipped some teeth, which is hard to do in football. Two, two teeth out. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell, tell me about that play and then and then I'll let you tell the rest about what has to be the sweetest revenge I've <laughs> ever gotten. <laughs> well, you know, Mike was originally a cornerback and a good cornerback. Uh, he was playing safety, free safety, I believe at this time. And this was later in his career too. And he had, had, he had taped up his forearm and you knew he was just waiting for this moment uh, to catch me on this route. But uh, what hurt me was the fact that Dave Craig sort of didn't look off the defensive back. He didn't look off the safety. That's the one guy that you don't want to be reading your route is the is the safety. If the cornerback reads your route, you're at least kind of running the same direction as the cornerback is. But if the safety reads your route uh, or reads the quarterback, then he's coming opposite directions, just like that. And that's what Mike Harden was doing. They were playing safety at this particular game. And uh, he read the route because Dave was looking right at me. And Dave threw the ball and uh, kind of threw it high. I went up for it like this. And, man, Mike Harden hit me with his forearm right here, right in my face mask. And, it, like I said, it broke my face mask. And I was out before I hit the ground. I, I didn't I didn't come to for a long time either. Yeah. And and so, and so after that, are, you're out for the rest of the game, correct? But no, they took me out for the rest of the game. Uh, Mike got, ended up getting fined $5,000, which was a lot of money back then. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I got, I got, uh, uh, I was out for the rest of the game. And then, and then you're back the next week. I came back the next week. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, and that's early in the season. That's like week one or two or something like that. Fast forward to the end of the season. Now it's like, I think the Broncos were in our division. So, you know, the Broncos, the Raiders, the Chargers, uh, the Chiefs were all in our, we were in the AFC West. And, uh, so, uh, Dave Craig threw a deep route, not to me this time, but to Brian Blades on the other side of the field. And it's intercepted in the end zone 
by Mike Harden because he's playing safety again. And so he takes the ball out of the end zone. I had run the same route that Brian had run on the right side of the field. He was on the left side. So I'm in the end zone, and uh, I see uh, Mike Harden running the ball out of the end zone. So I start pursuing him, and he's ahead of me. Uh, but he, he, and so I'm chasing him at an angle. And so he cuts to his left, still looking at our offense that's on the field, not looking at me who's behind him. And so he cuts to his left. And when he cut to his left, I just smashed him as hard as I could with a legal tackle. I didn't hit him with my helmet or anything like that, but hit him, you know, right under his helmet, uh, with my, with my, uh, shoulder and just got a great hit. He fumbles. I recover it. We win the game. So yeah. that was uh, that's that's uh, that 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 is my one favorite play in my NFL career. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. The guy who sets every record that can be set for receiving his favorite play is a tackle. Tackle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's and and yeah and and for the listener, if if you if you pull it up, I mean, you can find it a thousand different places on YouTube. The amazing thing is he is a bolt out of the blue because you're not in the frame. And then all of a sudden at the last second, you come in and it is a textbook, perfect tackle head in front shoulder. And, and for a split second, it's just the hit. And then all of a sudden you look around for a second and the ball's on the ground and you just pounce on it. Um, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great play to watch. Well, you can um, tell it still, it still brings me a lot of joy because I'm still smiling. <laughs> and somebody I, I read somewhere afterwards, somebody said, did you know who it was? And he said, I knew exactly who it was. <laughs> I knew, And that was the truth. There, were, there was no mistake about it. I knew, I knew exactly who it was. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so I have to ask you some questions. I'm, I'm always fascinated by this part. Um, you, you obviously play 14 years in the NFL. You go up against, you know, the best defensive backs there are. You see two, different sets of Raider backfields. You're up against George Atkinson and Jack Tatum earlier in your career, and then Hayes and Haynes later in your career. Tell me, tell me about some of those guys, but also some of the other ones. The, you know, you've talked about Mel Blount, but Ronnie Lott, Lewis Wright in Denver, um, that whole Kansas, <clears throat> excuse me, Kansas City Chiefs secondary, you know, Deron Cherry and all those guys. Tell, tell me about some of those different D-backs you went up against. Well, they, they were the best of the best. They really were. Uh, and you know, we saw them all in the AFC West, and uh, of course, they were uh, great players. And it was fun because most of them I got to know at the Pro Bowl, uh, so I got to you know hang out with them and talk with them and uh, just hear their stories about you know the games that they played or the a particular player or, or, or anything like that. So it's just fun swapping stories when you get to the Pro Bowl and uh, seeing their guys just like just like you are, uh, no different and. Uh, they're just, you know, really, really good people. And that's, that, that probably is the thing that I enjoyed the most about my NFL career is getting to meet guys like Mike Haynes, who's just a really a class guy, uh, great athlete, a great cornerback. Uh, like I said, very smart uh, and, uh, and obviously a great player, but uh, other guys, uh, um, they were all uh, just super players and so I knew I had to be on, I had to have my A game uh, anytime we were playing any of those teams and we played them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I interviewed uh, Phil Villapiano for the show and he told me that he's like, look, I played, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 12 years in the NFL. And he said, it was just different when you heard behind you, 
Tatum hitting somebody. He said, you know, I, I had a lot of guys behind me hitting people. He's like, it just sounded different when it was Tatum. Uh, what, yeah. what was it like going up against him in particular? Uh, but, you know, he, he, he was a good player. I, I used to watch him in Ohio State when he played there. Uh, he was a, a great player. Uh, and really, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for uh, the play that he, he uh, made at safety for the Raiders. But, uh, you know, they, they had a guy that, that could stop you and stone you every time he tackled you. So, and, you know, when we went in to play the Raiders uh, at the end, towards the end of his career, uh, as receivers, we always, we always knew where Jack was. We always knew where he was. Uh, on any play, a running play, a passing play, we knew where he was. And uh, we, were, we were trying to be careful about uh, how we dealt with him because he, he, was, he just was a, a great, great safety, a guy that you'd want on your team. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how, did you, you must have played against Ronnie Lott a decent amount. Yeah, we played against Ronnie mainly in the preseason. They were okay. in the NFC, we were in the AFC. So we mainly played him in the preseason. But, uh, yeah, we played against him in the regular season on occasion. Uh, but, you know, Ronnie was a guy – he was like Kenny in that uh, there were no holes barred. Uh, and he, he was throwing his body on the fire every single play and uh, gave everything he had to, to win games. And, and he, was, he was a winner. Yeah. And that, and that KC Chiefs secondary, which I think one year sent all four guys to the Pro Bowl, which is just, you know, almost impossible to do. Yeah, they, they were incredible. They had a great team. And uh, they, they were – they're sort of uh, – they don't get the due uh, – they don't get what, what's due them either. Uh, yeah. they, they had a great defensive secondary. And we, we had to – I mean, yet as a receiver – you knew this was a game you were going to have to work really hard to catch a pass, not to catch five passes, but to catch a pass uh, because all those defensive backs could play and uh, they could play really well. Yeah. Those are uh, Kevin Ross, Albert Lewis, Lloyd Burris, and then, and then oh, yeah. Ron Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and I'm curious when you were growing up as a kid outside Oklahoma city, who were the receivers that you, you watched that, you know, when you were a kid, you idolized. Well, I spent most of my time playing football. I didn't watch a lot on TV, but I remember the guy that I always looked at was uh, Fred Blitnikoff. Okay. Uh, I think just because he always made incredible catches, he was always getting open, uh, and I just liked the way he played. So yeah. I would watch a, a, an Oakland Raiders game and, uh, and, and watch Freddie uh, getting open and just making great catches all over the field, making tough catches over the field. And uh, so I, I've always, I always admired his game. Yeah, he killed my Vikings in that 76 yeah. Super Bowl. Ugh, yeah. MVP. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and, who, and during your career, and obviously there was some overlap with Freddie, you know, at the end of his career, beginning of yours, but during your career, who were some of the guys, and, and you would have seen him at the Pro Bowls also, but who were some of the guys where you admired their game, you know, same position? Uh, well, the first guy that jumps out at me is Dan Fouts quarterback from San Diego. Sure. Uh, man, you talk about a business-like uh, frame of mind that he carried with him in every game he played, but in particular, he, he, he did it in the Pro Bowl as well. Uh, he would talk to the receivers. He would talk to the offense. He would talk to the entire team and tell them how he was going to play and what he was going to do. Uh, but he did it in a very uh, mannerly way, but a, a way that you knew he was serious Playing in the Pro Bowl. I mean, most guys are screwing around at the Pro Bowl. 
Uh, but and now it really is that way. But then, I mean, every game he he approached, he approached it with a serious frame of mind, uh, and uh, and and that he wanted to win. There was no question about that. Uh, and so that's what he talked about before the game was: we're going to win this game. Uh, we're going to go out there. We're going to make plays. And uh, and and so I always admire. I mean, uh, I I really learned a lot from uh, Dan and, and watching him uh, as a player. Uh, but uh, he's such a great guy and a great leader um, and just, you know, kind of amazing deal. But really, he, he set an example for me to follow in terms of leading the Seahawks uh, and the way I talked to them, the way I, I led them. Uh, yeah. So I, I, that meant a lot to me. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's great. But Franco so- Harris is, you know, Franco Harris is another guy. I got to play with him, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, he was another guy that was a great leader and kind of a quiet guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, when, when Franco spoke, you listened to what he said because you knew he had years and years of experience and uh, he'd, he'd been there and done that. And uh, so he was a great leader as well. Yeah. So, that, so, then, so then your career ends and a f- just a few years late, your career ends in 89 season. You decide to run for Congress in 94 and you win. And you go on to run four more, well, three more times. You run for a total of, of four yeah. elections in, in the House, uh, representing uh, your district in Oklahoma. What was behind the decision to run? What was your experience like? I mean, you know, obviously eight years is a long time, but I'm just, you know, kind of curious what you thought. And and also it was at a time when J.C. Watts was also uh, yeah. representing Oklahoma, former quarterback for the Sooners, Jack Kemp. But he was instrumental in, I mean, he came to Tulsa and campaigned for me. And uh, of course, I, I got, had gotten to know uh, Jack by his, from his son, Jeff Kemp, who played for the Seahawks for a number of years. And so I had met him at those games and uh, we had been, you know, built a relationship. But then when I was running for Congress, Jack actually flew to Tulsa and uh, campaigned with me and raised, helped me raise money and uh, was really a great guy. So, so what, what was Washington like? I mean, were there any parallels you could draw to football or is it hard to make that you know, connection? Well, first of all, uh, you'd, you'd have to know that this was not my idea. This was my wife's idea that I run for office. Uh, and I always said that, you know, uh, when I was leaving the NFL, reporters would ask me all the time, what, do you, what are your plans for your future? And I said, I don't know, but I, I know I, I, don't want to, I don't want to do two things. I don't want to coach. And I don't want to be in politics. And I would say that everywhere I went. And so uh, here I am running for Congress now. And it was really it was really my wife who it was her idea. And uh, she was very involved in, you know, reading about, you know, politicians and the decisions they were making primarily. And so she said, you know, I, I really think you should run for office. I said, you got to be kidding. I'm not, I don't want to run for office. And so uh, eventually you know, we had enough conversations about it that uh, I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to run. I'm going to run one time. And if I ever lose, I'm out. But I'm going to run one time. And if I win, then I'll do it. So that's what happened. I, I ended up running for Congress and end up when I had a six way primary. Uh, so six people were running for the seat. I was one of them. Okay. And uh, I ended up winning uh, the primary without a runoff. And uh, ended up in a, in, a, in a general election with a, another guy who was running for the first time. And I won that election. I think I had 64% vote or something like that. And uh, so then I'm in, I'm in Congress uh, and not really knowing a lot about what I'm doing. 
Uh, I was never political. I was not a political science major. I was a biology major. Uh, so I didn't really, uh, I didn't have a lot of background uh, to my uh, speeches <laughs> to talk about. But, um, you know, I, I went and it was, it was one of the most fascinating experiences I've ever had. Uh, one would be the NFL, two would be in Congress, uh, just to learn about uh, the system, uh, learn about Congress, learn about uh, the documents that the, the founding fathers left to us to follow. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing, uh, fascinating, um, great experience that I had. Now, I wouldn't want to run today. Uh, I don't think it's the same, but uh, when, when I went to Congress, and, and, and the bottom line was we ended up being in the majority that particular election, we won the majority, Republicans won the majority uh, in the House of Representatives. So uh, now I'm serving in the, in the House, uh, in the majority, uh, where your decisions really make a difference. And, um, and so it was, you know, it was really a, a well, I also learned that there's two bodies uh, and, a, and a president that have to sign any law so that you got to work with the Senate and you got to work with the president. And so I learned a lot about uh, politics and about uh, the political system and uh, really left fascinated and uh, enjoyed my time immensely. Right. But no, no desire to go back. No desire to go back. <laughs> well, look, I have to tell you, this has been great catching up on, on you know, kind of the growing up in, in Oklahoma and, and hearing about your Tulsi years. Obviously, you know, record-breaking career with Seattle. Fascinating. You're spending eight years in Washington. It's it's been a real treat to you know to be able to sit down and talk with you, Steve. Really appreciate <clears throat> you coming on Chasing Hardware. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it and uh, uh, enjoyed my time. Excellent. Okay. Well, take care, Steve, and thank you very much. Take care. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider 
with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.